But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners lose, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before we jump into that text, let's pray and ask for, for God's help. Uh, Father, thank you that, that Jesus has spoken and has given us a way of, of living and being in the world that's different than, than the way the world operates. And yet, God, it's really hard to do these things, to practice this, to live this way. And so I pray as you open up, as we open up your word this morning, would you open our hearts to what you have to say that we would live and embody these teachings we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you told me 10 years ago that Kanye West would be producing the best Christian music that I could listen to, which is true, um, or that Justin Bieber was giving the most rich theological explanations of salvation to an interview for Apple Music, I probably wouldn't have taken you seriously. Those guys are not maybe typically of, of who you would have thought as a Christian 10 years ago. But this week, uh, I watched an interview with Justin Bieber from Apple Music, and it was, it was really interesting. It was pretty stunning. Um, that he laid out what I think is like a pretty compelling and beautiful vision of salvation. It's clear he's singing about this pretty deeply. Um, but there was one part of the interview that was, was discouraging. And that was the interview asked him, interviewer asked him, basically like what, what produced, like, what enabled you to go from living the life of a rock star um, to living the life of someone who's like taking the teachings of Jesus very seriously? What happened? <laughs> That's a big change. What, what happened? And here was the way he answered this. He said, I had really bad examples of Christians in my life who would say one thing and do another. So they were my direct example of who Jesus was. I didn't take it as seriously because I didn't have good examples. As I mentioned, like, he went on to give like, like, a really profound vision of what the gospel is and what salvation 
um, is, but that line is something I bet most of us can relate to. The idea that often what makes Christianity not believable or not compelling is the way that we see Christians, churches live. And so we're about halfway into a series now we're calling Rediscovering Jesus, which is going back to the Gospel of Luke and just sort of asking, who was Jesus? What did he teach? What was he like? Because you can become so familiar with something that you actually aren't familiar with it anymore. You can see Jesus so clearly, you actually don't see him anymore. We can take him for granted in such a way that we don't actually live lives that are are in any way meaningfully different because we've just assumed Jesus into our lives in ways he never meant to be. And so we're forced to, or I want us to wrestle with this question, are our lives compellingly different than someone who doesn't know Jesus if we claim to be followers of Jesus? Or would most people look at our lives the way that Justin Bieber looked at the people in his life, which was they were no different, and so I thought Jesus and his gospel was no different. That we don't want people to look at us that way. We don't want people to look at this church this, this way. We won't, don't want anyone to look at us, our community, and say, I'm not going to take Jesus seriously because it's pretty clear you don't take Jesus seriously. And so in the midst of this sort of like rediscovering Jesus Gospel of Luke series, we're in basically like a three-week mini-series where Jesus preaches his founding sermon to the community that he's going to start, which will become the church. But right now, it's just a few disciples in the Gospel of Luke. It's called the Sermon on the Plain, and it's his founding vision for what he wants his community to be built on. And so last week, we talked about the church, his community is to be a community of prayer, of, of healing, and of, of calling people by name. Like we're sort of backwards to the values of our world. And, and there was some probably tough stuff in there, nothing too controversial, though. This week is the week where what Jesus says is incredibly controversial and incredibly challenging if you're willing to listen to it. This is where Jesus is going to challenge you and me in fundamental ways and force us to ask, will I take Jesus seriously? Will I build my life on his teachings? And so there's two points uh, this morning, but they're going to be long. Uh, The first point is the church, the founding community of Jesus, is to be a community of mercy and a community of kindness. Mercy and kindness. The first, uh, mercy. And when I say, like, well, that that doesn't sound very controversial, right? Like, yeah, Christians should be merciful. That sounds about right. And yet what Jesus says here is it's new and it goes against what the predominant religious teachers of his day would have said. So I want to read his words again. Verse 27, Luke 6. Jesus says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. So basically every religious teacher in this day would have said, like, don't hate your enemies. Right? Don't attack your enemies. And that's, I mean, that's just good advice. Right? If you just attack your enemies, they attack you back. It's not a good way to go. But Jesus doesn't say that. That's sort of the typical religious teaching is don't hate your, don't be bad to your enemies. Jesus doesn't say that. He says you need to love your enemies. You need to do active good to your enemies. So most religious teachers say, don't attack your enemies. Don't do evil to your enemies. Jesus says, you have to do more than that. 
You have to love your enemies. You have to pray for your enemies. You have to bless your enemies. You have to do good to your enemies. And maybe you're thinking, you know, Tim, I don't really have any enemies. And my advice back to you, or my response back to you would be, don't be Midwestern nice. And don't pretend like you don't have any enemies. Because your enemy is anyone who's hurt you. And the moment someone does a wrong to you or hurts you, a cycle starts in your soul. This week, someone Misty and I are close to had a, a pretty intense fight with her sister. And in the midst of that fight, it became a shouting match. It became physical in ways. Um, and it was just devastating to hear what happened. Incredibly harsh words, anger, vitriol. And thinking about this text in that moment this week, just, like how, how does a sister get to a place where she treats her sister in such a way that they may never speak to each other again? Right, as someone with young kids, I have an eight, six, four-year-old boy and, a, and a, then a one-year-old girl. It's like the thought of them one day never being able to speak to one another. How does that happen? I think a big part of it is we don't recognize we have enemies. We have people who make us angry and a cycle starts. And we, we don't name it. We don't see it. We don't begin to respond to it. And Jesus, what he's doing in this moment is saying, listen, you have enemies and you need to begin right now thinking about how you're going to respond to people who hurt you. And Jesus gives his community, his disciples, and I think probably the assumption, like, your enemies aren't just like the people out there. It's going to be people in here as well. And here's how I want you to respond to the people who hurt you. He says two things. Actually, he says a lot of things. I'm just going to, we're going to say two things about the lot of things that Jesus says. And two steps, two ways to respond to the people who hurt you. The people we don't want to name as enemies, but they are enemies. Two things Jesus says. First is you have to pray for them. Right? Pray for those who abuse, who abuse you, who hurt you. And in prayer, a couple of things happen that are both really important. The first is in prayer, you actually your feelings of anger get validated. Right? If you ever pick up the Psalms and, and sort of read through the Psalms, one, one challenge that we'll, you'll find is that the Psalms, almost like every Psalm has like a prayer against an enemy or a prayer that's angry about an enemy who's like hurt them or who's slandered them or who's gossiped. Like it's just... There's all kinds of enemy prayer in the psalm. And for a long time, because I grew up in the Midwest and I'm Midwestern nice, it's like, gosh, I don't really relate to all this enemy talk. And this is just, this guy needs to calm down and be nicer, right? And until you actually live life a little bit and you realize, like, no, we, there are people that do this to us. And the first step, Jesus says, and the psalms would say, is you put all of that in front of God. You take all of that to God, that if our, our prayer book in the Hebrew Bible and, and for our, our scriptures has enemy prayer in it, you and I need to have enemy prayer in our own lives. And I think what's beautiful about that is what God is doing is, is saying, I know you feel these things. I know you experience these things. And I want you to, I want you to name them with me. All right, for so much of us, like just having our pain, our hurt, our anger, just validated by another person is a powerful experience, right? You're not crazy. That should have hurt you. It did. I'm sorry. Like, you know, it's like, that's not, and what God is saying is, I want to do that with you. I want you to bring your pain to me, your anger to me, and I want to validate your feelings. I want, to, I want you to experience those feelings in front of me. And the fact that all of those feelings are in the Psalms makes it clear God has a lot of room for those feelings. People hurt us. God wants us to pray. The second thing that happens uh, in prayer, right, so that's the good side of it. The, the little bit harder side of it um, what happens in prayer is what theologian Miroslav Wolf says, where he writes, he writes this. 
It says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. See, prayer, a couple things happen. One is, you can't pray someone's humanity out of them. Because that's a, that's a being God has made. And no matter what evil they've done, God cares for them. Um, he loves them. He wants them to, to repent, to heal, to be different. Right? That's a human being you're, that, that you're angry with. And it's okay that you're angry, right? Point one, God's going to validate that for you. But this is a human being. You can't exclude that person from the community of humans. And secondly, you can't exclude yourself from the community of sinners. Right? You're not the judge. You're not perfect. <laughs> and even if that person is wrong to you, you, you are still a sinner forgiven by God. And so we put the person in front of God who doesn't just want to ignore their character flaws and doesn't just want to condemn them hopelessly to hell. That's not God's heart. So in prayer, we encounter those two vital things. One is God cares about our pain, our hurt, our experience. He wants, to, he wants us to feel those things with him. And secondly, that, that frees us then from acting out in anger towards others because we, we come into this space and we begin to see the people who have hurt us not as people excluded from the community of humans, but we see them from God's vantage point, which includes them in the community of humans. So, who do you need to pray for? Who is it that hurt you, that's angered you, that you need to pray for? Because so often when we are hurt, the first thing we do is we don't pray for our enemies, which again, doesn't mean we overlook what they've done, right? We're not saying that none of those things matter. No, they do. It's clear in the Psalms. Those things of hurt do matter which is why God wants them with you in front of him. Who do you need to pray for? So the first response to enemies is to pray for them. Right? And so this, this, if we are a community of Jesus, following and embodying his teaches, our first response to people who hurt us is prayer. Is to pray. That's step one in, in how to love your enemies. Step two, then, is again, Jesus didn't just say, don't hate them and, you know, don't throw things at them. But second, do good to them. And I think what's interesting is, is Jesus, he's speaking to an oppressed minority here. So, they, like, the people he's speaking to actually had it, like, incredibly bad. The Roman culture would have, would have lorded over them. They would have been taxed at high rates. They would not have had freedoms that you and I take for, for granted. And so they had it really bad. And yet Jesus says, I want you to take a posture of kindness towards your enemy, of, of mercy towards your enemies. And yet I want to be clear, that doesn't mean that the wrong doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you ignore the wrong. That doing good, actually, excuse me, to do good to someone means you can't ignore the wrong, right? You want to bring good into their life, which means you can't just ignore the thing that they're doing uh, as, as if it doesn't matter. It's not ruining their life or the lives of others. But two things happen here. First, you, you, first you pray, you pray it out, you work, you get, you get God's view of that person. And then secondly, when you go to them, you want to first seek reconciliation. You want to, you want to, you want to do good. You want to heal what's been broken. And yet, yet in, along with that, if they're not interested in having good done to them, it's okay to withdraw. Right? When Jesus says, turn the other cheek, uh, I don't think what that means is just let people keep slapping you. I think actually what it's saying is, is turn towards them in friendship. Offer a, a cheek to be kissed. And if they don't want to do that, if they don't want good to be received, then it's okay to to withdraw, to remove. And yet, we don't withdraw or remove until we've prayed for them and we've sought their good. So who do you need to pray for? And who needs, who needs you to do good to them? 
Maybe a loving confrontation, maybe a, maybe a person you've confronted, but you didn't confront them in love. It wasn't for their good, it was for your good. And you need to go back, but first you need to pray, just so that you can speak a word um, that's good for them, even if it's hard. And this is, this is heavy stuff, but this is, this is my hope for this community, because this is really what distinguished the early church from the rest of the world, was the way in which they treated their enemies and the people who hurt them. The community, was, the community of Jesus was different than the surrounding world because the community of Jesus to their enemies, they prayed for them, they blessed them, they showed kindness to them, they forgave them. And so uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle, he says that this, this verse, love your enemies, was the most quoted verse of the early Christian writings. All right, so our verse is John 3.16. So you turn on a Chiefs game, and I see this less now, but you know, someone's got some, you know, neon green poster board, John 3.16. Right? That's what we hold up. That's not what they held up. Right? If they had had football games back then, and, uh, and you know, some distant uh, relative of Patrick Mahomes was quarterbacking, they score a touchdown, field goal goes up, they would hold up Luke 6.27. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. And so Larry Hurtado, he wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods. And he said there are basically five reasons why Christians went from despised and hated a cultural minority that was oppressed in the first century to a culture or a church, a religion that eventually took over the Roman world. And most Romans became Christians. He said basically there are five reasons for that shift. Uh, the first reason is that the church was, the early church was multi-ethnic. Which means that uh, the church attracted people from all backgrounds, all classes, all cultures. You didn't have to become a certain type of person to become a Christian. It was clear, whoever you were, the, like the gospel was for you. Second was the early church cared for the poor in radical ways. So much so that we have a writing from an early Roman leader to another Roman leader who was sort of amazed that what, was, what he wrote was that Christians don't only take care of their own poor, they take care of our poor, the Roman poor as well. The church cared for the poor, revolutionized, and, and bought them a hearing in their own society. Third was that the early ch ch church was positively pro-life. And when I say pro positively because Romans had this practice where if they, were, if they gave birth to a child they didn't want, they would often expose them, either leave them in the wilderness or literally just take them to the trash um, for the child to die. And Christians didn't just condemn that practice. They actually adopted those children into their family, which Rome had no explanation for why you would take these children that no one wanted and actually make them a part of your family adoption. There's no category for this, and it, it won the Romans over to the way of Jesus. Fourth was that the early church had a countercultural sexual ethic. That in a, a culture of promiscuity, the Christian uh, belief and practice of marriage was liberating to women because men could, could do whatever they want. Um, and the church said, no, they can't. Um, they need to be faithful to their, their wives, which meant dignity for women. And it also meant stable families, which were incredibly different than the, the Roman culture, which did not have those things. And so the, the, the Christian family in the first century was a power, powerful counter-narrative to the Roman families of the day. And the fifth reason Larry Hurtado gives is the early church loved their enemies. They quoted this, this command to one another. When they were hauled off to the, um, to the games to be killed in front of cheering crowds, they forgave the people killing them. They prayed for their persecutors. They blessed, for those who, they blessed those who oppressed them. They loved their enemies. And Tim Keller pointing this out says, today, um, today in our culture, progressives love the first two, right? It's, well, yeah, the care for the poor in a multi-ethnic community. We're in for that. And conservatives like the second, uh, the third and fourth, which is a pro-life ethic and a family-first uh, 
culture. But Keller points out the fifth one, love your enemies, nobody likes. And nobody practices. And I don't know that the church always practices that. But Jesus here is offering a teaching that it requires us to be completely different than our surrounding culture. To be a community that does not condemn the people who hurt us and, and, and harm us and oppress us, but to instead pray for them, bless them, do good to them. In the early church, with no money, no cultural power, no influence, they even had to meet in, a, in, a, in the graveyard. Right? So those of us, we've been mobile a number of years. We've met in schools, now a hotel. Imagine inviting someone to church in a graveyard. But their community was so compelling, people worshipped in the graveyard. Because this community loved their enemies. And they completely upended their culture because they loved their enemies. And so their enemies became Christians. The Jesus' founding vision is that we are a community of, of, mercif- of mercy, right? Verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. May we not lose that founding vision. So that's point one, community of mercy. Point two, a community of, of kindness. So if, if point one was like the central verse of the first century, love your enemies, uh, this, is the, this is the central verse of our century, of our culture. That if anyone was to quote you a verse inside or outside the church, it, there's a good chance it's this one. Judge not, and you will not be judged. It's the one verse that is like, I like that. Let's, let's talk about that. Um, and Jesus, what I love about this passage is he's clearly using, uh, he's, he's using humor here on a couple of different um, levels. But essentially, he's like, you know, later in the verse, or later in this teaching, he'll say, you know, just imagine, imagine you have a log sticking out of your face. Um, and you, ha- with the log, see, and I almost brought a log up on this, I was like, I can't do that. Um, so there's, you've got a log in your face, and you walk up to someone else, and you're like, hey, you've got, a little, you've got something in your eye, can I get that? Let me get that out for you. While you have a log sticking out of your face, it's meant to be, uh, it's meant to be humorous. Um, and so what, what Jesus is doing here, it's, it's interesting. So throughout Luke uh, 6, kind of verses uh, 32 through 36, he uses the word sinner a lot. And he's setting up this dichotomy. Right? You don't want to be like the sinners out there. The sinners, they love people who love them. Don't be like the sinners. Right? The sinners, they lend to those who lend. Don't be like the sinners. And so he's talking about people outside the community, calling them sinners. And then he gets ready to talk about people inside his community, his own disciples. It's just like, don't, you know, even sinners lend to sinners. Don't be like them. But now I'm going to talk to you. But you love your enemies. Do good. Um, your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. So be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So he's like, don't be like the sinners, because you're going to be sons and daughters of the Most High, because he's kind to you guys, and you are evil and ungrateful. Right? And then he says, and you all have, like, you have a log sticking out of your face. Like, this is not a, very, like, this is not a way to win over a crowd, right? So, you're, you know, you guys, you're just ungrateful and evil. Amen, let's go in peace, right? This is not, that's not going to win people over. So what is he doing? And C.S. Lewis wrote about this in a little essay called, called The Trouble with X. It's a great essay. And he points out in the essay how we all get frustrated with people at some point or another. And we try to find ways to change them, right? We want them to stop doing things that are annoying to us or that are annoying to others. And that's incredibly frustrating because those conversations don't often go very well. When you point out someone else's fault, they often don't, go, uh, don't respond very well. And they don't see what is, seems obvious to us. And so Lewis says the, those frustrating moments with people, 
when they won't change what are obviously obvious character flaws, gives us a little glimpse of what it's like to be like God. How God sees all of his good plans spoiled by people who are sinful, crooked, and ruined. Just like the people around us ruin our good ideas for community, joy, by their sin. But then Lewis takes a hard turn in this essay. And so it's, it's really good writing, so I'm going to read an extended period of it, or extended uh, passage from this essay to let his punches land the way that he intends them to. Here's what he writes. I said that when we see how all our plans shipwreck on the characters of the people we have to deal with, we are in one way seeing what it must be like for God, but only in one way. There are two respects in which God's view must be very different from ours. In the first place, he sees, like you, how all the people in your home or your job are in various degrees awkward or difficult. But when he looks into the home or factory or office, he sees one more person of the same kind, the one you never see. I mean, of course, yourself. That's the next great step in wisdom. To realize that you also are just that sort of person. You also have a fatal flaw in your character. All the hopes and plans of others have again and again shipwrecked on your character, just as your hopes and plans have shipwrecked on theirs. It's no good passing this over with some vague general admission, such as, of course, I know I have my faults. It's important to realize that there is is some really fatal flaw in you. Something which gives the others just that same feeling of despair which their flaws give to you. And it's almost certainly something you don't know about. Like what the advertisements call halitosis, which everyone notices except the person who has it. But why, you ask, don't others tell me? Believe me, they've tried to tell you. Over and over again, and you just couldn't take it. Perhaps a good deal of what you call their nagging or bad temper or queerness are just their attempts to make you see the truth. And even the faults you do know, you don't know fully. You say, I admit I lost my temper last night. But the others know you're always doing it. That you are a bad-tempered person. You say, I admit I drank too much last Saturday. But everyone else knows that you are a habitual drunkard. It's a great essay, but this is the one line I don't want you to miss, which is Lewis saying, you also have a fatal flaw in your character. Or in the slightly more humorous words of Jesus, you have a log sticking out of your face. And the worst thing you can do is to not acknowledge it. And so if we were to embody this teaching of Jesus, do not, judge not, listen to others, uh, judge not, Um, condemn not, because you have a log in your face. If we're to embody this teaching of Jesus, it means two things. First, we are a community of people who all have a fatal flaw. We all have a fatal flaw. And I don't know about you, I'm, I'm really, I'm an expert in discerning and discovering the fatal flaws of other people. I can name them, I can claim them, like, I, I just see, I know what your fatal flaw is. And I will never forget the moment when God made it clear to me, I'm tired of you being an expert in other people's flaws. 
That moment came after a conversation with someone I, I considered a friend. And, and they spent most of that conversation just detailing my, my faults, my, my weaknesses, the log in my own face. But they didn't do it with, with kindness. They exaggerated my, my faults. They had no interest in my growth. It was a conversation of condemnation. And what was hardest about that conversation um, was when they were doing that, they had the exact same flaws that other people have told them about, have said that about them. And as that person was laying into me, they were completely unaware of the fact that they, that is who they are as well. And so I left that conversation and I was shaken, I was angry. And as I prayed it out, I, you know, my conversation with God, I just, there were a few times in my life I would say God really spoke, and I, he spoke. And first, is what I said earlier, there was a validation of my feelings. Yes, that was not a kind conversation. That's not the way Christians should speak. Yes, that person has faults they are not aware of. And yes, they exaggerated with you. And, and God said to me, and I don't care about any of that. You have a log in your face. Can we talk about that? And of course, my own mind, it's, no, 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 okay, yeah. It's, but it's not that bad. It's, 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 not a, it's a stick. And God said, no, you have a log in your face. Can we talk about that? Right, well, yeah, it's a flaw, certainly. We all have room to grow. That person probably a little more than me. And God's just like, shut up. I want to talk about the log, and I don't want to talk about anything else. And can I tell you, when you embrace that, it's one of the most freeing moments of your life. Because one, you have a log everybody else knows about, and it's really awkward to have a log in your face and to pretend like it's not there. <laughs> That's just awkward. But secondly, it's, I don't have to fix anybody else. I don't have to... Um, I have to complain in my head any, anymore. All I have to do is go to God, who is a kind and merciful father, who knows I'm evil and ungrateful, <laughs> who knows I have a log in my face and, and wants to heal me. And when you're more concerned about the faults of those around you, you, you don't get that freedom. You don't get to that, that place. When you're too concerned about either dealing with the flaws around you or you do not recognize that your flaw is not just a problem, it's actually fatal You'll never get to the sort of freedom Jesus is inviting you into. Because not dealing with your fatal flaws is fatal. Right? If you went to the doctor tomorrow and they told you, listen, you have stage four cancer. I have no doubt you would take everything that um, she said seriously. You would do everything she asked. You'd find other people with the same cancer to go and to um, see how they helped you know, get healed or, or, or prolong their life. You would be deadly serious about doing everything you could to, to, to take care of this cancer. And yet Jesus says that's what sin is. The wages of sin is death. You have a fatal flaw in you. You have a log sticking out of your faith. And if you don't deal with it, there might come a day when you say something to your sister and you can never speak to her again. And you can't take it back. We don't just have a flaw. We're not just a little bad temper. We just have some things to work on. We have a log in our face. We have a, a fatal flaw that must be dealt with. And we are a community of people who gather with that as our foundational assumption. And that's actually a really beautiful place to be. 
right? And that's where I want to be. So one, that's our, we are a community of people with a, a fatal flaw. But secondly, we are a community of people who then embody the kindness of God to those of us with fatal flaws. What I don't think, want you to think of this means, okay, so we all walk around super depressed. It's like, hey, man, I'm an awful person. I know, me too. It's like, it's just, we're just all bad people. Maybe we'll go to heaven one day. So that's not what the Christian community is. And it's why I love the fact that Jesus uses humor here. That once you can actually acknowledge you have a log in your face, a couple things can happen. One is we can laugh at ourselves. All right, so this week, uh, one of my faults is I, I, I like to argue. I'm an arguer. If I wasn't a pastor, I'd be a lawyer. It's like that's, I just, I, I wake up and I'm like, listen, what do you want to argue about today? That's where I start. And so we were at, uh, this week we were in San Antonio, uh, all the campus pastors at this little conference together. And so we were having a conversation and I just, I started, I started arguing about something that was just pointless. It was dumb. I shouldn't have done it. And, and I did it. Then we, you know, we went around and I just came back in. I was like, you know, I shouldn't have, that was dumb. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. And another one of the campus pastors made fun of me for it. And we laughed. Because it was funny <laughs> that I did that. And what's, but what's, what's, what, was, what was redeeming about that humor was that what that laughter moment was, and because we're close, like he can do this, what that laughter was was almost the sense of, of Andrew's name saying to me, you're, that's not who, you, who you're going to be one day. And so we can laugh about it. You're, you argue about dumb things, and that's funny. And because I know, that, I know that log is present in my life, I can laugh about it. And because he wants what's best for me, he can laugh about it. And a community of people who all own our stuff, who know we have logs, we can, there can be humor about it. It's people who do not know their faults. You can't talk to them about it. They get defensive. It's a t- it's all, no one wants to have that conversation, but there's, the log is still there, right? But when we all know the log is there, we can laugh. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. Is y'all have logs in your face. It's kind of funny. Maybe we should do something about that. So when we can laugh, but too, and, and this is where I was going, is we can laugh not because we mock one another, but because we are committed to one another. Uh, so here, let me, here's what I mean. One of, the, one of the other defining moments for me in, in ministry in my life was, um, was in, a, in college. I went on a, a, a mission trip to, to New Orleans just after Hurricane Katrina. And so I was in, on staff at a campus ministry. Uh, you know, 20 or so of us went. And one of, the friend, one of my friends who went on the trip, his name was Brian. And Brian, uh, he was someone who he struggled to fit in. He was a little awkward. He was a little different. Um, but he was an incredibly generous person. He was so generous, actually. Uh, more people signed up than we expected, so we needed another car. And so he's like, take my car. We'll take my car um, down there. He's a super generous guy. We actually, in the end, we ended up wrecking his car. But he's so generous. He's like, guys, let's go. we'll wreck my car, all right? That's how generous he was. He was just this generous, generous guy. But because he was awkward and sort of different, like, he, we just always made him the butt of our jokes. And he, like, if there, he was kind of always the punchline. He did, you know, strange things sometimes. And... And I have no doubt we meant it in love, and we meant it in kindness. We meant it in inclusion, like genuinely. But I remember about midway through the trip, after someone made another a joke at his expense again, he, he just lost it on us. I said, I'm tired of you making fun of me. I'm tired of being the butts of jokes. Just leave me alone. And then, uh, you know, and then just walked out. I mean, it, was, it was one of those clearest moments, like, oh, there's a log here, and I, I see it. And the reason why, like the reason why that was such a hard moment for me, was not because I think all humor is is bad. No, I, listen, I think important in my role as, as kind of a lead pastor of this site is that you make fun of me regularly because um, I should not take myself seriously. And there's, let's be honest, there's a lot of good comedic gold about who I am, what I do. Anyway, we can't lose that. We got to laugh about that. So, there, like, there's not. It's not that there's no humor. Um, 
And yet, why, like, why that was so devastating to me was I knew all of Brian's struggle. I knew him in a way probably no one else in the group did. And we had a pretty honest and transparent and real relationship. And rather than using my every word for his good to lift him out of the place he was in, words of kindness and grace and hope, rather than our, our community, which was supposed to be a community of Jesus, oriented t- towards his growth and change and, and a better life forward, instead we used those words um, to lower him instead of to raise him. And, and here's why I know I failed Brian, is that our community, the community of Jesus, is one where we look around at all the people who gather around us, and we don't envision and use our words to hold them where they are today. Which is why Jesus says, I don't want my community to be a place where you're condemning other people, where you're judging them others, others with harshness. I don't, want you, I don't want you to be like that because you're all not, you're not static and you're not, you're not going to stay locked into the people you are now. You are becoming more and more like Jesus, which is why there's this beautiful line when Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but this line, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. That's Jesus saying to you and me, if we make him our teacher, we will become like him perfect and whole and blameless. And so the church community becomes this place where we don't look around at one another and define each other by the logs, but we define one another by our teacher, by Jesus, by who we're becoming and who we will become. Have you ever wondered, um, the people in your community, what will they be like when they are perfect, like Jesus? Your friends and family who follow the way of Jesus, have you ever just sat down, what will they be like when all the things they do to me that frustrate me that I have to pray through now, when that doesn't exist and they're perfect, what will that be like? That we get to help one another become that. When we're acting in the way of Jesus, right? When we are the community of Jesus. And and reality check, in my 36 years of being a part of the church, following Jesus, oftentimes the church forgets this. And the church community becomes a place more to hold us in our faults and to name them and make us live in that space where we perpetrate gossip rather than kindness, empty humor rather than mercy, more clear on the, fault, the flaws of the people around us than the fact that we get to participate in the work of Jesus to make the people around us like their teacher because they get to help us become like our teacher and I think that the fact that we've lost that is why so many people get worn out on, on the vision of Jesus and his church, why they get worn out on the church, why there are more people today probably than ever before who say, I like Jesus, I'm going to follow him, but I'm not going to a church. Because we've lost this founding vision of Jesus, that our defining reality is not that other people have logs in their face, but that I, <laughs> I have a log in my face. And once you deal with that, once you get to that place of freedom, then can you humbly... And in kindness and in mercy, go to your neighbor and say, I want to help you see a little better. I don't know, you probably noticed I've had a log in my face for a while. Um, God's dealt with that. And now can I help you see a little better? The church should be the most kindest, merciful community in the world. Because of this weird verse where Jesus looks at his community and says, listen, You're going to be sons and daughters of the Most High. 
Because he's kind to you who are ungrateful and evil. It's like, how do you hold those two things together? It's like, Jesus, like you're a son and daughter of God, and you're ungrateful and evil. It's like, how do you hold those two things together? And that's what the gospel is. Our founding vision, that we who are ungrateful, we who are evil, get the gospel of Jesus. Which means I don't go out to others and judge them and look down on them and think myself superior to them. Because me, who is ungrateful and evil, with a log sticking out of my face, with a fatal flaw, has been made a son of the Most High, who will become like his teacher. Who, as God said, has been treated with Jesus, and this is a metaphor lost on us, God to me has, has given me a measure that is pressed down, shaken together, and running over, handed to my lap. Now it's like, what is that? In that day, grain was a primary means of, of wealth. And so what you would do is you'd, you'd fill up a cup with grain, and if you were really generous, you'd shake it so all the air got let out so you could add in even more. And Jesus didn't just add it to the top. He overflows it. It's like overflowing grain and it's, it's to your lap. That's how Jesus, that's his posture towards you. And listen, if, if grain doesn't uh, land with you, it's like I feel a little wrong to say like God gives you an overflowing pot of money. It's like that doesn't feel right. That's sort of what's going on here. He's so generous towards you. He's so kind towards you. And if that's what the gospel is, that we who are ungrateful and evil get to become sons and daughters of the Most High, how could we ever go and look at anyone else in condemnation, in judgment, with no mercy, with no kindness? Because look at, look at what God has given to you. That's the founding vision of the community of Jesus. God says to us and says, yeah, you're evil and grateful, but I'm going to make you my child instead. That's who Jesus is, and we are to be his community. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would instill in our own hearts and lives this beautiful tension that we have a fatal flaw and yet you are making us into your sons and daughters. There's no way to square that circle and most of us, God, it's hard to do that in the day. So we either, we don't believe that you really love us to that extent, which makes it hard for us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. It makes us hard to show kindness towards others. And so I pray, even in these next few minutes, as we move into communion, as we sing a song together, would you lavish us with your grace? Would you fill us with the, the beautiful generosity of your son, Jesus, that we, we could extend it to the world around us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.